0: So it might not seem like it, but it's the middle of the day here in Beijing. The air is so polluted that it's darkened
1: the sky. Most of the progress towards the environment and saving it and getting rid of carbon, etc, has been done on a local level. Now, some people with say the goal well, of making energy
2: both cheaper but also completely clean. And so with the right
1: innovation, uh, clean energy is actually cheaper than dirty. The well, world's
2: biggest energy agencies believe the oil market will rebalance by the second half of this year, but there are still questions about price.
1: Brent Crude is down by
2: four. Minutes. We will unleash the power of American energy, including shale, oil, natural gas, and clean coal. What we're going to do, folks, is going to be so special. Special. Hello, and welcome to Off the Charts, the podcast of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago, also known as EPIC. I'm your host, Jeff McMahon. Climate and energy policy have been getting more attention in Congress lately, thanks in part to the Green New Deal, some nascent Republican support for a carbon tax and dividend proposal, and continually falling prices for renewable energy. Today we explore the atmosphere in Congress with Congressman Sean Caston. Sean Caston represents Illinois' 6th Congressional District, located in the suburbs just west of Chicago, and is serving as a freshman in the 116th Congress. He's one of the few members of Congress with a science background. He has a degree in biochemical engineering. Before joining Congress, Caston served as the President and CEO of Turbosteam Corporation which developed technologies to generate heat and power from previously wasted energy. In 2006, Kasten co-founded Recycled Energy Development, a company that built, owned, and operated waste energy recovery plants throughout North America. He has also been an advocate for energy efficiency as a founding co-chair of the Northeast Clean Heat and Power Initiative. Now, in Congress, Kasten serves on the House Financial Services Committee, the Science, Space, and Technology Committee, the Select Committee on the Climate Crisis, and he is a co-chair on the New Democratic Coalition's Climate Change Task Force. He told us his office is working on 50 bills related to climate change. Kasten is interviewed by Amy Harder, an energy reporter at Axios and an Epic Journalism Fellow. Let's listen in on their conversation.
0: Great. Well, thank you, Michael, so much for that great introduction, and it's great to be back here in Chicago. Thank you, everyone, for being here in Chicago, and those for uh, those of us joining online as well. And thank you to the congressman. I've heard you've had a great day here, chatting with a lot of the researchers. Uh, I want to start um, with some high-level questions, and then get into some of the more nitty-gritty, wonky stuff um, that you can all catch on the podcast, the Epic Podcast. Uh, in a few days to so be on the lookout for that. And then at the end, um, please be thinking for those of us in the audience here for questions for the congressman, because I'll be fielding some of those at the end. Uh, so you've been a few months, maybe about almost six months now, into your new job. What, are, what is the, the biggest thing you've been surprised about in a good way, and the biggest thing you've been surprised about in a bad way, about working in Congress?
1: Um. So let me tell you the biggest overall surprise, and this may, count, this may count as both negative and positive, depending on where you sit. The, we were, I think I was there for about a week when we all got called together and they said, you need to come into a classified briefing because Secretary Mnuchin wants to lift sanctions against this Russian aluminum company and we have to make a decision about whether to do this. And so I sort of scurried down and I'm thinking like, this is super cool, like, I get to go to a classified briefing. Um, what I learned was really troubling, but then a couple weeks later they said you want to go get a tour of NSA and see all the cool toys we have, and all of a sudden it hit me that I said wait a minute, I have a security clearance, <laughs> and nobody ever did a background check on me. <laughs> and, and I think that's both good and bad, because you, you realize like as a, I think this is the only job in the world where you get a security clearance, and just like for the record we have crazy cool toys at NSA. Um, that should be and, their advertisement. And you press. can completely trust me with that knowledge. I am a loyal patriot, and I look around Congress, and I think, I can't believe they trust some of you with this information. <laughs> but that's hands down the biggest surprise.
0: So that leads me to my next question is, so you have an incredibly impressive background as an entrepreneur and a scientist. How do you think your background has prepared you for Congress? And are there some ways that you don't think it, it has?
1: Um so i think that the you know our, our our founders contemplated a system of government of citizen legislators right the the idea was that we would be represented by people who who have life experiences similar to our own the there are surprisingly few people in congress who come from from you know backgrounds in the sciences or backgrounds in energy um, you know it's safe to say that nobody I mean, the Democratic Party said, you know what the dream candidate is in this cycle is somebody who's dedicated their career to climate change and has a chemical engineering degree. That wasn't, that wasn't like the standard card, um, which is fine, but, but it means that on the, I think, and, and, I, and I say this not just about me, but our freshman class, at least on our side of the aisle, has a whole lot of people who had, had achieved a lot of success in another line of work and came to politics for the first time. So having never even, I never ran for student government. This is the first elected office I've ever run for. If you want advice, I'm batting 1,000, you can never lose. Um, but within our freshman class, we have Johanna Hayes, who was the teacher of the year. We have Donna Shalala, who accomplished a few things in her 75 years of life before first deciding to run for office. Um, we have Abby Spanberger and Alyssa Slotkin, who are ex-CIA officers. And, and I mention that because there are all these people who, we have a class that for the first time in a long time, has the citizen legislators that our founders intended, and I'm not saying there's any. I'm not saying we should all be scientists or all be CIA officers, but there's a. You learn how to think about problems in different disciplines in different ways, and having people that had their formative years in different fields, I think, makes the overall Congress more effective. If that makes sense.
0: A quick raise of hands uh, because the congressman, of course, his expertise is in energy and climate change, but he covers everything, right from the, the CIA, to, <laughs> to other things. Who here is interested in energy and climate change specifically, or Congress more broadly? So first, energy and climate change. OK, so, so that gives you a sense of, obviously, mm-hmm. the audience at EPIC. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that leads me to my third question about your impressive committee list. You're on the House Financial Services Committee, which has um, a lot of power over something like uh, a lot of the climate policies. And then you're, of course, on the Select Committee on the Climate Crisis, as Michael mentioned. Uh, Given we're in a school setting and you talk about classes, being the freshman class, which, of course, implies you're only there for four years, (laughs) which I'm assuming you want to be there for longer than that. Um, How would you grade uh, Congress's legislating so far on a scale of F to A?
1: so I'm a you know I think on our side of the aisle and our side of Capitol Hill, we've done we've done A plus work. Um, the we and I don't I don't say that just to score a cheap political point. We passed HR one that's I think probably the most important campaign finance change, would have public financing of elections, eliminate gerrymandering, declare Election Day a national holiday, really, really important stuff that would dramatically reduce the power of incumbency and dramatically increase congressional accountability. And it's in no it's in no incumbents' interest to do that, and yet we voted for it and passed it on a straight party-line vote. Um, we passed H.R. 9 to rejoin the Paris Climate Accord. We passed H.R. 8 to restore, to put universal background checks in for guns that we haven't done in 20 years. Um, we passed the Equality Act to finally give the LGBT community um, equal treatment under the law. Um, We passed a a significantly expanded Violence Against Women Act that includes provisions that I think are hugely important because the the single best predictor that someone is going to be a mass shooter is that they're a white male between 14 and 45 with a history of domestic violence. And in the Expanded Violence Against Women Act we give law enforcement the ability to take guns away from people with a history of domestic violence. That's what we should be doing. I think that's pretty good. Um, you are talking
0: about your side of the aisle, however. And,
1: and our side of Capitol Hill.
0: Right. So where does bipartisanship fit into this, particularly on energy and climate <clears>
1: change? Um, I think bipartisanship is overrated. <laughs> I'm serious. Like, do, do any of you in your in your work say, I'm going to get things done that match my moral compass, but I'm only going to do it if I can get somebody from some other tribe to participate, right? I mean, I think we, we judge Congress for that, but particularly in, in this moment where, um, like, I voted for Republicans in my, in my career. I voted for Democrats in my career. I, prior to now, I never thought of myself as hanging a particular letter after my name. But we're in a, we're in a Congress where there are 85 new freshmen in the Congress, 65 of us are, are, are Democrats. The, that means 25% of the Congress is brand new um of the 65 new dems on the freshman side the majority are people who like me flipped republican districts which means that ideologically if if this is sort of the whole scope of the ideology of the country the democratic party went from here to here and the republican party went from here to here right there you know it there are people on the fringes of the republican party like the steve kings of the world who i don't I don't need to find places of commonality with with people like that. There are people. There are people in the in the center who have like moral views that I share, and I'm happy to work with. And and a number of them, you know, there are people like, you know, Brendan Fitzgerald from Pennsylvania. Um, um, there's a, um, uh, I I won't go through all the name dropping, but there's a number of members who I get along with who are sort of on that on that bubble. Well, you can
0: see having work with on energy yeah. and climate issues? Well,
1: on, on a lot of issues. Like, you know, Dusty, Dusty Johnson from North Dakota was a utility regulator. Um, on social issues, we're pretty far apart. But he really, really gets how utility regulation blocks our ability to invest in clean generation, and we'll find some good things to work on, right? Um, but I think the important thing in Congress is that you, is that you pass bills and you pass them into law. And There's a lot
0: of research, though, that shows that democrats can't do it all on their own and in fact that's what happened in 2009 and 10 democrats pushed through a big sweeping climate legislation known as cap and trade with just very few republicans support in 2009 and then they couldn't even get it to the floor in the senate even though democrats had control of the house senate and the white house um, are you concerned that democrats could do it all over again next year. Well, no, I, I, I guess
1: election. what I'm saying is that what I what I care about is that policies that matter get a support from the majority of Congress. What letter people hang after their name, I think, is a secondary question.
0: So it may be a few Republicans with all Democrats. Something yeah, like that.
1: yeah, and and frankly, if if it's if it's a few Democrats with a lot of Republicans, but it's good policy, that's fine too. I'm just saying that the, the metric of, you know, how many D's and R's signed on to this, I think makes for, you know, makes for a nice media story, but I don't think it really has much to do with whether or not the policy was good.
0: So you recently introduced an um, uh, energy storage bill. Can you tell mm-hmm. us about why this ranks pretty high, it appears, on, on your priority list and to what degree you think there could be broad bipartisan or broad support mm-hmm. for that, even if there are not a lot
1: of bipartisanship. Um, yeah, so we did actually, out of the gate, we, that's a bipartisan bill, um, and bicameral. Tina Smith has introduced it in the, the Senate side. Y- you'd mentioned at the start of my membership in the GSD Club and that carbon matters, renewables as a goal to carbon, and we, we've got big parts of the country, Midwest especially, where we have deployed renewable energy so quickly that we're now seeing an increase in gas combustion because you've got big places where the grid is trying to manage wind going up and down, and the only thing that we have that can respond in real time to that fluctuation is um, really inefficient gas turbines running at half load. And so we're deploying these, these, these technologies that are necessary from a grid stability perspective in response to this huge upsurge in renewables. And if we say that our goal is to deploy renewables as quickly as possible, at some point, we start increasing CO2 emissions if we don't solve the, uh, the the larger holistic issues.
0: Because you're increasing natural
1: gas. Yeah, because in order to maintain stability on the system, you've got to put something in that can ramp up, ramp down quickly. And so, so the the idea of this energy storage bill is let's provide, in this case, half a billion dollars to go and put a lot of energy storage out so that when we when we are ramping up, we can store take it out. You guys understand how that works. But the, in some parts of the country, that's going to be real important. In other parts of the country, we really need to de-bottleneck the transmission system. There's, there's places in the Pacific Northwest where utilities are installing resistor banks to dump excess electricity because the combination of wind and hydro at certain points in the cycle exceeds the load on the system, and there's nowhere to put it. Well, we could fix that with transmission, right? But we've got to look at the system holistically and make sure that we get to zero carbon as quickly as possible. And sometimes that means what technology we generate with. A lot of times in a lot of parts of the country, it's how that system is stitched together.
0: So that appears to me as somewhat of a piecemeal approach to addressing climate change. Do you think Congress can make progress on smaller bills like that? Or do you think, do you want to throw your weight behind something more sweeping? Maybe not the Green New Deal. I know you've been somewhat lukewarm Mm -hmm. about that policy.
1: Um, So... I have, about <clears throat> I have about 50 bills that I want to introduce, and we're moving as fast as we can with our legislative staff to move them forward. We've got a transportation one that's going to be coming out shortly. We've got one to mandate clean energy purchases from federal facilities coming out shortly after that. I've got a larger, at least electricity and industrial-wide carbon bill that's going to come out behind that. The, there's, there's no silver bullet Right. I mean, throughout my whole career, I, I I got very frustrated by the fact that we, as a country, were not moving quickly enough on climate change because we had so many legislators saying, "This our energy system is too complicated. You can't move too quickly. And we now have a wave of energy in the Congress that says this problem is too urgent to worry about the complexity. Both of those approaches are problematic. Um, we have to recognize that this is both urgent and complicated. And so you know, if, if, if I had one single bill I could do to solve everything, I'd tell you, I don't think there is one single bill. There's different approaches in different sectors. Um, it's going to take a whole lot of stuff together. And I'm, I'm delighted that you know, you know, the Green New Deal and other folks have brought this sense of urgency that's long overdue. But we still got to deal with the complexity.
0: You mentioned a few minutes ago about all the bills that the the House controlled by Democrats have passed. Uh, are you frustrated that those bills are passing and they're not? They're never going to pass the Senate. Do you, do you feel like it's a little bit futile efforts to introduce all of these bills that may never even get a vote on the Democrat-controlled floor, let alone the Senate?
1: Um, well, they did get a vote on the Democrat-controlled floor and they passed. Um,
0: <laughs> well, some of these bills, but some of like the fifty bills that you were introducing, for example.
1: Um, that they may not. Order. Yeah, well, well, we'll we'll push through what we can to get those things all controlled on the floor. I mean, yeah, like in my last job, I was a CEO, and I could say this is what the company is going to do. In my new job, I'm a middle manager. Like <laughs> I'm, I'm at peace with that. Of,
0: of, an, of an institution <laughs> that is incredibly.
1: Um, yeah, it's not it's like our public. our our founders designed this institution to be deliberative, right? And a lot of times, that's a good thing. Um, sometimes when there are things that demand urgency, it's a bad thing. Um, but it's, it's the job I chose, right? I think, the, I think the question about if we are passing bills that the overwhelming majority of the public wants, then we are doing our job in the House you know, background checks on guns, campaign finance, health care protections that we passed. We all campaigned on it. We all won elections. We made promises to people that we were going to bring these things to the floor and pass them, and we have. And that is nothing to be ashamed of. I have never once in my career decided what I was going to do in that afternoon based on what I thought Mitch McConnell was going to do that morning. Mm -hmm. And I don't plan on changing that right now, right? The, you know, I think we're, you know, when when we get when we get to a re-election, I hope we will have a point where the Senate will take some of these up. But in the meantime, I want to be able to to tell people that everything that I said I was going to do, we we worked hard and we got a record that we can run on, um, and not not in a watered down way that would 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 cram through would cram through the Senate, but in a way that is consistent with with the will of the people.
0: So I'm going to say a, f- a few terms, uh, and then I want you to say. Uh, one answer in response to it. the first word that pops into your head. This is what I call the rapid-fire round.
1: Uh, this is going to get Freudian in a hurry.
0: <laughs> so the first term is Donald Trump.
1: Uh, I don't know why that was funny. Um, the worst president of my lifetime.
0: 2020 Democratic nominee. One of them. <laughs> <laughs> one of them. <laughs> Could be two of them if one runs as president yes, and the other true. one runs as VP. Uh, the Green New Deal.
1: Uh, right idea, wrong details. Carbon tax. Uh, too much stick, not enough carrot. Natural gas. A useful way to start killing coal. Nuclear power. Um, we better keep the existing fleet running, and I have no idea how to attract capital to build new ones.
0: See, you haven't been in Washington long enough because if you had, you would have taken a lot longer to answer those questions. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) So, on behalf of the media everywhere, I thank you for being succinct. Please don't lose that as you spend more time in Washington. Uh, So, I want to drill down into some of those questions, um, some of your answers, now that you were so succinct. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about the Green New Deal because, despite the fact that it's still just a uh, resolution and a proposal with no actual policy. nuts and bolts, it's gaining so much attention, and as you said, it is uh, generating this conversation. So to its critics, it's the socialist takeover that is going to make it so we can't eat burgers or fly. <coughs> to its supporters, it's um, what is absolutely necessary according to what the science says. Um, you kind of already addressed this, but can you talk about why you think this debate is important, but some of the concerns you have about what the Green New, where the Green New Deal debate could be taking us. Do you think it's further... Polarizing an already very polarized topic.
1: Um, so the the truth is, outside of the media world, it has almost no impact inside of the worlds that I live in. The um, and look, there's it is awesome that there are so many people getting passionate about this and forcing members of Congress to care about it because it is. It is truly lonely for someone like me who campaigned on climate change and won on climate change to get there and find out how few of my colleagues understand the difference between a megawatt and a megawatt hour or a ton of carbon and a ton of carbon equivalent and that CO2 and carbon are two different things. Like there's a there's a really low reading level in Washington and that will change once we get people saying if I'm going to win I'm going to have to appeal to voters who care about this topic and you know god bless everybody who's out there saying climate matters and we have to and we have to vote like climate matters. So I don't want to in any way, you know, the, what the green new deal has done politically is w- way more good than bad. The the reason why I say that it doesn't really matter is pick pick any topic in your head that you know, I assume all of you are passionate about climate. Pick a topic that you're really scornful of. You know, pick whatever you like in your own head. Imagine if you had been elected to Congress and and advocates for that issue had prepared something that was a litmus test for whether you were a good person and pre- presented it as a fait accompli without going through any committees on the assumption that the people who ran the committees didn't know enough to do this the right way. And try to imagine how much traction that would get, right? Um, I mean, if I had just got, if the Republicans had just won and they said... We've got a huge tax bill overhaul, and here's what it is, and we're going to give a bunch of money to people, and we want to bring this to the floor right away. You'd sit there and say, "That's who, who elected you, right?" That that doesn't matter. And so we've got this document that was was you know was put together by activists, activists with heart of gold, but activists. And and in the meantime, you have a whole lot of people who who are passionate about this issue. When I, you know, when I knock the body, like there are people like. Paul Tonko from New York, who used to run the New York State Economic um, and Environmental Research and Development Authority, he gets this stuff. He understands it. you got guys like you know Joe Kennedy, who spent a long time working on capacity markets in New England, who, who get this stuff. Those two people, by the way, are both on the Energy and Commerce Committee, which is responsible for writing those bills that are going to come to the floor, and they're good people. They are motivated by the right thing. And they're not going to sit there and say, yeah, we're going to bring this to the floor just because you like it. If there's good ideas, we'll bring them forward. The, the concern I have, you know, I'd mentioned on some of the, on the renewability side, we have got to get the carbon down as quickly as possible. We have to recognize that we have this unbelievable opportunity because almost anything you do to generate low carbon energy, is something that you are doing to generate cheap energy. No one turns off a solar panel because the price of electricity is too low. No one decides not to drive their electric car because the price of gas is too low. Once you get these assets, you run them and you lower the carbon. And that means that there's a, there's a fatal flaw that both the far left and the far right, I think, have fallen into of framing what we have to do on climate as are you a moral person or are you an economic person? and the reality is you don't have to choose because carbon is a unique pollutant that lowering it means you're gonna burn less fossil fuel which means you're gonna save money and we need to think about policies that will make sure that we equitably share those gains and what the far left and the far right are both trying to persuade us of is we need to figure out how to allocate the pain of this transition
0: So you don't think there's
1: going to be any pain? I think that we could lower our carbon emissions by 50 percent profitably. Once we get that Across done... Across
0: the economic uh,
1: spectrum? Look, you, you look at our trading partners, Switzerland, Germany, Japan, Denmark, they all use half as much energy as we do per dollar of GDP. They have similar mature technologies, they have similar access to talent, similar access to to capital, and and we have basically an energy intensity, you know, our, our closest, if you rank all the countries in the world by energy use per, per dollar GDP. Not fossil use, total energy use. We're basically, we're about the same as Qatar. Um, our, our near peers on that list are all very extractive com- countries. Our trading partners for Which the- Which
0: we're m- now a very extractive country. No, no, aside. I understand,
1: but our, but our trading partners are for the most part countries who have, who have embraced policies <laughs> to reduce their exposure to volatile energy prices. And that's not to say we can get 100% without some pain. But if we prioritize the pain, we're going to run out of money before we solve the problem. If we prioritize the gain, we will create a ton of wealth that will extend our runway and buy us some atmospheric time before we have to get there. And we have so many opportunities to do that that we should be we should be focusing on that unbelievable opportunity because there's There's hundreds of billions of dollars of accretive investments we could make that will make us all wealthier. And if you don't believe me, all you have to do is look at the fact that over the last 15 years, the carbon intensity of the U.S. electric grid has fallen by almost 30 percent. The price of power has fallen by 6 percent. About 15 years ago, we didn't pass Waxman-Markey. That had a goal to cut the power sector emissions by 17 percent because we thought it was going to be too expensive. We were dead wrong. We had a sign error. Like we were a little wrong. That's because we of the were. Gas. We yeah. were. Well, it's because of a couple things. It's because when we in 1992 when we put market forces on the grid, people started preferentially dispatching lower cost assets. And you know what the lower cost assets were? They're the cleaner ones. The nuke fleet went from 60 percent to 90 percent capacity factor. We built a ton of combined cycle gas turbines that are almost twice as fuel efficient as the grid and then the price of gas went through the roof and a bunch of those developers went bankrupt, but when the price of gas fell they started running those assets. We've now more recently started to deploy a a whole lot of wind in part because of a response to tax policy but as a result of that we're knocking off all the high marginal cost stuff on the grid. Coal is dying because it is a horrible investment. Inefficient and natural old gas, gas is like,
0: a, is a cheap alternative.
1: It it well natural gas and wind are cheap but the point is that they are both so much cleaner and so much cheaper. And so the stuff that we're washing out of the system is the expensive stuff which is also the dirty stuff. And and carbon's a unique pollutant that way. This isn't true for SOx, this isn't true for particulate for CO2, you can't lower CO2 without burning less fuel, and fuel costs money. And, and so we have these huge opportunities that are there, and really understanding that opens up a whole other set of challenges. Because allocating, allocating gain is also a challenge. We were, we were just talking earlier that we've, uh, you've got this point where, as, as we've deployed so much clean energy, the, the marginal price of power is collapsing because we're knocking all the expensive stuff off the system. And as a result, it's getting much harder to deploy clean energy because, because markets aren't paying a premium for that. Hopefully, Michael, you'll fix that with putting a social cost of carbon on. But how you figure out, you know, we, we've got all of these policies that said energy is going to eventually be so expensive if we deploy renewables. And so people had this lazy assumption that that means that it'll be easier to deploy renewables. Well, in fact, the price falls when you deploy renewables. And that makes each one incrementally harder to deploy. We should be thinking about that challenge. That's a legit policy challenge, but that's a share the wealth challenge.
0: So we've been talking mostly about the electricity sector, which is arguably the easiest sector of the economy to um, make cleaner. But one big one, of course, is the transportation sector recently surpassed the um, the electricity sector as the largest source of emissions in the country. So just a quick raise of hands for those of us here in the room. Raise your hand if you drive a gasoline powered car. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> so I think that was well over 50% um, for those joining online. And, and I talk about this a lot, but you know, my sister who lives in Washington State, she drives 80 miles to and from work, mm-hmm. and she acknowledges climate change, is concerned about it for her kids, but she voted against the carbon tax there because she was concerned about the impact on gasoline prices. Do, do you have the same um, philosophy and, and logic about uh, driving and gasoline prices as you do in the electricity sector, and how do you compare and contrast those?
1: Um, so I think it's a different set of policy tools in the transportation sector. The, it, it, at some level, I think it's the same fundamental question, which is how do, you, how do you lower the barriers to deploying cleaner capital? Because once the capital is deployed, it will always be used
0: what kind of if, capital, capital you know, buying
1: what? buying new cars getting charging stations like electric you know, cars yeah That's like ones or even more efficient cars right but you know it, if if any of you haven't driven in a tesla go drive in one they are crazy fun like no one who owns one of these things thinks like yeah like you know I really would rather drive the minivan today like, it ain't <laughs> happening <right? laughs> and it's cheaper and the maintenance interval is 100,000 miles Right, the, they're they're just hugely lower cost to operate. Now they're expensive, right? So there's a there's a policy question about how do we how do we reduce the apparent cost of the consumer to buy those? Because once they buy them, they will preferentially use them, even if they've got another car in their driveway. The th- what you
0: you assume?
1: Um, I'm 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 pretty comfortable that given you know given given the marginal cost of operation. If you assume that people are making economically rational decisions, okay, you're not going to use this for your, you know, your trip to the boundary waters, but you know, for most of your driving, this is just the, this is the the cheaper car to drive.
0: But do you acknowledge that gasoline prices may increase if there's a big policy on climate change?
1: Um, the y- y- yes, but I don't. I don't. It's hard for me to see the political will where the increase in the price of gasoline exceeds the volatility we've all come to expect in the price of gasoline. I mean, it, it, over the last 10 years we've had $30 a barrel oil, we've had $100 a barrel oil. That so massively swamps this out that that I think there's more value in in avoiding people's exposure to that volatility than the question of what's an extra couple pennies the per gallon, even a couple dimes per gallon. But the but what I was what I was starting to say I think is is different on the transportation side is that for an asset like a power plant <clears throat> that is designed to run, if not 24-7, you know, 18-5, you know, it's most of the cost of that plant is in operations. And so the policy tool to change what assets we run is lowering the cost of operation um, for the clean assets. For a car, the and, and this is an interesting piece of math. A, a, if you were to build a combined cycle gas turbine, it's probably going to run about 7,000 hours a year on your pro forma. If you buy a car and you have an hour-long commute each day, every, every day, and you own it for 10 years, you're going to put about 7,000 hours on that car over the entire lifetime of the car, right? So the overwhelming majority of the cost of a car is the cost of the car. The overwhelming majority of the cost of a power plant is the cost of the fuel, right? So the, so the policy tool to get people to buy cleaner power plants is the marginal cost of operations. The policy tool in the car is what's the cost of the car.
0: I, I saw that you've um, had some uh, focus earlier in your career on on ethanol and cellulosic mm-hmm. ethanol. Um, the renewable fuel standard, um, as many of you may know, is a uh, <coughs> bipartisan, very bipartisan, but also controversial policy that... Requires refineries to blend increasing amounts of ethanol, mostly from corn, but there were big aspirations to have it come from non corn products like cellulosic material. And the congressman can get into the details there. For a whole host of reasons, it hasn't, on the advanced biofuel side, the cellulosic side hasn't lived up to the hype and what Congress had intended more than 10 years ago. It was passed in 2005 and expanded in 2007. Uh, to what degree do you think the RFS has been succeeding? And do you think that's the type of policies that one that Congress should continue to support in order to make the transportation sector cleaner?
1: Um, so the so the background here for, for you, all, I did my master's thesis trying to make cellulosic ethanol, and I spent um, three years doing that, and we had we had some success, but it uh, was not yet commercialized. Um, and it's
0: hardly commercialized. Today. Yeah,
1: and the. I don't mean to get wildly off-topic, but the, the, I, I had back in my early consulting days, we, got, we were retained by the EPA and the DOE to develop a strategy because President Clinton said we we're going to triple biomass use in the U.S. By, within 10 years and triple bioenergy use. And our first meeting, I said, okay, if you look at the total bioenergy use today, do you include pulp and paper mills? They said, well, that's you know, bioenergy. We said, okay, then you have to rebuild the entire US refining industry. Like, that's on a BTU basis, that's how much you have to do? They said, okay, let's take out pulp and paper. I said, okay, the problem is so easy that it's irrelevant. <laughs> they said, okay, well, can you give us the markers of when we're going to make progress? And we sort of thought about that, and we said, at the point where the Chicago Board of Trade has biomass contracts by by ash content, by pH, by particle size, the way we do for winter wheat and summer wheat and and feed corn and and all these other, then you'll know we're there because, you know, the challenge with with cellulosics is the same as the challenge for biomass power plants. You have this extremely heterogeneous fuel, and it's really hard to design a chemical process that handles that kind of variability. Um, Technologically, I can see a way to make it work. I mean, it's on if in my thesis 15, 20 years ago, if it worked every day the way it did in its best days, it would be commercializable. Well, that means that, you know, you can, you're not at theoretical limits. You're trying to figure out how to standardize that in this very heterogeneous process. I think we should keep trying to focus on that. Do you, um, so
0: you support the RFS?
1: Um, I think we should keep encouraging um, this to go forward. I think even, um, you know, even on the corn side, and let's be honest, corn is a really fertilizer-intensive fuel. It, it significantly limits the... The, the carbon benefits of corn-based rel- corn ethanol relative to gasoline, um, but it's still better than gasoline on a full fuel cycle basis. Um, and the, and the, the yields and the productivity, you know, particularly in the ethanol conversion side, even for corn ethanol, have improved dramatically. Um, and so I think there's positive things that have happened out of that. Um, it's been good to have oxygenates to replace MTBE as that's been phased out. It's been good to have other octane boosters. Um, if, if, if you told me that the only technology we're ever going to have is corn-based ethanol, I'm not super happy about that. Um, but, I, but I think it's done, a, it's done a good job of cleaning up the air in, in the time it's been around.
0: That might be one thing that you and President Trump have in common in supporting the RFS. <laughs> So just trying to further bipartisanship, which I hear is what the media tries to do.
1: (laughs) I would encourage you to ask Trump that same question and compare our
0: answers. (laughs) Yeah, I'll add that to the list. I'm sure that will get asked in a White House press briefing if those still existed, which they don't. Um, A couple of questions on a a topic that is, is a big one here in Illinois, and then I want to remind the audience I'll be coming out to you in just a few minutes for questions, so please be thinking of things you'd like to ask. Uh, your your quick answer on nuclear power was really interesting. Uh, you you basically said that you support keeping open the ones that have been struggling, including economically stru- struggling, including the ones here in Illinois. But you're so, sort of an open question about building new ones. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about that? I, I mean, do you think nuclear power? Do you think how do you think Congress should handle these plants that are shutting down today, and then? Do you think there should be a big attempt to build new ones, uh, even if they're perhaps small modular reactors?
1: Um, So, look, I'm deathly afraid of climate change. I'm deathly afraid that we're not moving quickly enough to deal deal with it. And I'm absolutely certain that the time horizon we have to deal with climate change is vastly shorter than the time horizon beyond which we don't know how we're going to store nuclear waste. And so and so on that basic math. I'm not saying that nuclear waste isn't an issue, but but if we deal with nuclear waste before we deal with climate change, it ain't gonna matter. So we got to deal with climate change first and and you know given the dispatch on the grid right now, every megawatt hour that we lose from nuke is basically an increased megawatt hour from coal. If you look at where they sit on the dispatch stack and and I'm a lot more concerned about all of the ancillary impacts of coal, including but not limited to carbon than I am on nuke. Um, the I think there's a so that's reason one why I'd like to see the nuke fleet alive. The second reason is that there are there are some fairly significant national security issues on on nuclear that we that not intentionally, but in ways that are unavoidable, depend on having a, a nuclear power industry. The whole nuclear supply chain, how we process things, how we monitor, that has a lot of impacts on our on our military side as well. Um, we really want to make sure that we have people in this country who understand that and people who we trust. and And I think there's a legitimate national security concern about what happens. If we lose that expertise in this country, but globally that expertise is still required um, so that 's you know way beyond energy markets I think just something to be careful about the The issue on new nukes is is I had a former board member who had been the CFO of public service New Hampshire when the Seabrook nuclear plant um, um, had the cost overruns and public service New Hampshire went bankrupt and charlie was Charlie was always um, it pains to remind us that Three Mile Island didn't kill the nuclear industry. Seabrook killed the nuclear industry. Because, and and you can see in the data, if you look at when we stopped building nukes, it wasn't when Three Mile Island blew up. It was when regulated utilities realized that they could actually be allowed to go bankrupt with cost overruns, because that had never happened prior to that point. And And Three Mile Island,
0: of course, is the partial meltdown in <coughs> Pennsylvania in nineteen seventy nine. And in fact that plant just announced it's going to shut down. Yeah, yeah. In part and because it only has one reactor yeah. and is not a Yeah,
1: and the and the, the Seabrook public service hampshire did bankruptcy was about five years later. And in mm. nineteen seventy nine you don't see any slowdown in new nuclear construction. Eighty three you see it fall off. And and the challenge that the nuclear industry has is that while there are a lot of really interesting new technologies out there, and I think it's a, we should definitely continue to do the research, the practical reality is that if you are, if you are a utility um, or a utility board of directors or an investor thinking about building a nuclear plant, you have to assume it's going to take five years or more to get the project built, that there will almost certainly be schedule overruns and that there will almost certainly be budget overruns. And when you look at where power markets are today, I have a hard time seeing any meaningful capital flowing in that direction. And even if it did, the first megawatt hour will be five years from the date that starts. And so from a, from a how do you reduce the carbon, keep the fleet running. But I think, I think thinking about deploying new nuclear in the current economy as a way to reduce additional carbon, I just don't see that happening in the current economic moment.
0: What about uh, advanced nuclear power, small modular reactors and
1: Sure. Like that? R- research it, let's develop it, and if, and if somebody wants to deploy it and we are satisfied with the safety, let's do it. I just, for all those reasons, I can't see, you know, there's this, there's this reality in that, you know, the, the power industry is really conservative for good reasons. It's really capital intensive and you're making a low margin commodity. The, it's going to take you the best power plant in the world you'll maybe get your capital back in five years. Typical one, it'll probably take you close to 10 or 15. The industry really doesn't like to build things that don't already have five to 10 years of operating experience on them. right? So it just just takes a long time for new technologies. That sort of S-curve of deployment is really long for the power industry. And that's true for nuclear. It's true for combined cycle gas turbine. It's true for wind. These are 20-year S-curves.
0: so you talked about the waste. Um, in my w- reporting and interviewing on this topic, I-, I do think the waste is the most <coughs> salient concern that the public at uh, writ large has about this issue. Uh, you talked, uh, you made an interesting comment that I hadn't I haven't seen elsewhere, that yes, of course, waste is a concern, but climate change trumps that concern. Mm-hmm. Um, Would you, you know, there's this big debate over Yucca Mountain. It was the originally suggested place that Congress recommended in in Nevada to put all of America's waste. And for many reasons, largely because of the opposition of politicians in that state, it didn't go forward. Would you support here in Illinois a repository like that?
1: Um, (laughs) Whose congressional district? Look, where it should be stored, I, where it should be stored safely, I think is a geological question, right? The and I think if we're if we're comfortable that we've got a way to store it safely, yeah, we should be comfortable storing it in our backyards rather than somebody else's backyard. If we're satisfied, and if we're not satisfied, we shouldn't tell people to put it in their backyard. I think that's I think that's fair, right? Um, the the practical reality right now is that we don't really have that choice because you know, every nuclear plant has a storage facility near their plant which is which is subject to a whole lot of safeguards and and in general those safeguards have proven to work pretty well. You know, we, we have not had, you know, we have not had risks from that depleted, depleted fuel stockpile. You know, we've had some control risks and they've gone on and if you if you ever get a chance to tour a nuclear plant I'd encourage you to do so. It's just from an engineering perspective they're really cool. From a layers of safety precaution that are built in, and you go through and you learn. Okay, after Three Mile Island, we added these three redundant safety measures. After Fukushima, we added these three more. They're they're hypersensitive to it, and um, and you know, and I and I think we also at least need to acknowledge the fact that our our servicemen and women in the Navy spend years under the ocean with a nuclear reactor right in their back chambers, and they and they have an impeccable safety record. Um, So we know how to do this. We just don't know how to do it in a way that has that combination of safety and low cost that will attract capital.
0: One more question before I (coughs) send it out to the audience. You talked about having uh, some 50 bills in the works. Can you (laughs) share with us um, perhaps one or two that uh, might be of interest to a broad audience? And is there any bill that you're working on that is really comprehensive in nature? Because right now we're seeing quite a few bills being introduced by Republicans and Democrats alike that really try to get at the big climate change problem, whether it's the Manhattan project of um, Senator Alexander, a Republican from Tennessee, or if it's a carbon tax and the Green New Deal, of course. Is there any plan that you're working on that you think could be an alternative to these plan- to these other ideas?
1: Um, so I've got two bills that I'm working on that are in combination. The goal is to be economy-wide or at least economy-wide outside of agriculture. I think agriculture is tricky. Um, but on the transportation side, we're working on one to resuscitate um, fee-baits, this idea that Jeff Bingaman had um, in the Senate many years ago, and, the, and to couple it with, with some really cool things they've done in Japan. You guys all know how CAFE works. The government says this is the fuel efficiency standard for cars, and then we lock that, maybe we lock a little bit of an escalation, and then politically we raise it later. Um, the Japan has done this thing called the top runner program which I think is really cool where they've they've depoliticized the question of what when we're going to tighten the standard by saying that that every year the standard for three years from now is set to be the most fuel-efficient car today and so you create this, this perpetual ratcheting of the, of the economy standard and so we're, try, we're trying to do something that would couple that approach with this fee bait idea that says the the point that you have to meet is the is the median car in the fleet and if you are more efficient than that car you get a tax credit if you're less efficient than that car you pay a tax penalty and you can and you design this to be revenue neutral and so you create this sort of steady pressure that encourages the manufacturers to drive up the efficiency and steadily lowers the price of the most efficient cars so that so that, to my point earlier, you do lower the cost of entry and then bring these more efficient cars to, to market. It, it takes a bit of tweaking on um, former Senator Bingaman's idea because, number one, he didn't have this ratcheting feature that I really think is just good policy. And number two, when he was in the Senate, electric vehicles weren't really widespread. And so that you have to adjust the math to deal with non, how do miles per gallon for a car that doesn't use gallons? And so that's, that's a solvable problem that we're working through. So that's the transportation side. The, the bigger one to cover um, the two other sectors is based on an idea that we had put together when, when the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative in New England was being developed back when I lived out in Massachusetts. We introduced this idea a little bit too late in that process. But the idea was to use an uh, a output-based standard and give a, a single allowance to every generator where you would set the allowance at 50% of the grid carbon intensity. So right now the grid's about 925 pounds of CO2 per megawatt hour. Let's call it 1,000 to keep the math easy. We'll give every generator 500 pounds per megawatt hour they generate and then require them to buy and sell between themselves um, to get to the, their allowed level and then have a similar top-runner idea to steadily ratchet that down, factor that in so that we stay within an absolute cap, and, and then some tweaks to make sure that um, we also capture the industrial sector and thermal energy, which is an algebra problem, but you can work that in. And <clears throat> um, it's a bit more complicated to go into in more detail, but it's, a, it's something that we'd hashed out, and again with some, some friends who are now at the Regulatory Assistance Project. And I, I, I kind of like it, because it's a bill you could structure that gets the carbon down, covers two pretty large sectors of the economy, and if you do the math right, doesn't affect the price of energy. Um, do you have a name for cognitive. it,
0: though, that is pithy as the Green New
1: Deal? Y- we are, <coughs> um, we're looking for ones. Just <laughs> if anybody's got a great acronym, throw it out. Start thinking, send me one in. You just um, call
0: it the, the, the New Green Deal. Y- yeah,
1: exactly. exactly. People can't even get the names right. I think
0: we've seen a lot of dyslexia yes, um, trying yes. to cover the Green New Deal. Yeah. Well, this has been a really great conversation. I do want to end it on one more lightning round question. Um, so, in five years, Congress will have passed a comprehensive climate change legislation. Yes or no?
1: I maybe. sure hope so.
0: Well, maybe we'll have <laughs> you back in a few years if you're still in Congress. <laughs> um, I want to thank the congressman and everybody here today for joining us. And there'll be reception. Thank you all.
2: Also. Thank you. Thank you, thank you for listening. We're going to have a second episode with Representative Caston, in which he and Amy Harder are joined by Michael Greenstone, the Milton Friedman Distinguished Service Professor in Economics, and the Director of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. They'll get much more detailed about the prospects for energy and climate policy. Please make sure to subscribe to Off the Charts wherever you get your podcasts, including on EPIC's website at epic.uchicago.edu. Until next time, I'm Jeff McMahon.